Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. Asia is at a dangerous moment. China is rising fast and its regional ambitions are growing. Reckless North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un may be assembling more nuclear weapons, despite diplomatic efforts to eradicate his arsenal. Japan is building up its military, throwing off constitutional constraints imposed after World War II. The United States, for so long a stabilising presence in Asia, is behaving erratically. The possibility of global catastrophe looms ever closer. This event launches a new book from Brendan Taylor, titled The Four Flashpoints, How Asia Goes to War, from La Trobe University Press. Brendan is an associate professor at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. He's in conversation with Professor Nick Bisley, head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. The event was introduced by La Trobe University Pro Vice-Chancellor International Kelly Smith. It was recorded at the State Library of Victoria on the 22nd of August 2018. Good evening, everyone. Wonderful to see you all here. Welcome to How Asia Goes to War, a La Trobe Asia event event in conjunction with La Trobe University Press. My name is Kelly Smith and I am Pro Vice-Chancellor International at La Trobe University and I'm also a member of the La Trobe Asia Steering Committee. And on behalf of the Chair of the Steering Committee, Professor Keith Nugent, I'd like to welcome you to the event this evening. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri Bunawang people, custodians of the land that we're gathered on this evening, pay my respects to their people and elders, past, present uh, and emerging, pay my respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are here this evening and to any elders who are with us this evening. La Trobe University is very proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the region in which we live. The work of La Trobe Asia is an example of such efforts, as is our collaboration with Black Ink Books on La Trobe University in the book that we are very proud to be launching this evening, The Four Flashpoints, How Asia Goes to War by Brendan Taylor, Associate Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University. In this book, Brendan examines the four Asian flashpoints that are most likely to erupt in sudden and violent conflict. The Korean Peninsula, Taiwan, the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Brendan will be in conversation this evening with Professor Nick Bisley, who is head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University and until very recently the director of La Trobe Asia. Following the conversation, there will be an opportunity for uh, a Q&A session. So uh, I hope that you all came prepared with uh, questions for the panel this evening. It's a fascinating top topic, uh, and these sessions usually generate a great deal of conversation and interest. So please join me in welcoming Brendan and Nick tonight. Nick, over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. And I should say from the start, um, thank you all for coming, uh, and it's a real pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure simply to be part of these things and not have to organise them, and the, the bits and pieces around it. Now I'm just um, a, a talking head at La Trobe Asia, not, not um, 
part of the, the, the nervous system. So it's a real pleasure to be to be back. Um, and Kelly probably should have mentioned, and probably will mention again, that you can buy copies of this book in the foyer afterwards. So I hope you came with your credit card or piles of cash. Um, so I wanted to start, Brendan, with um, sort of the, the big picture around the book. Uh, and uh, we've got the four flashpoints, as, as Kelly said, said the, the Korean Peninsula, um, the Taiwan Straits or Taiwan status, uh, the territorial disputes in the South and East China Seas. These are all old. These are all, these date from the immediate post-Second World War period. They are always a consequence of the way the war ended, particularly the way in which Europe, where uh, the Axis forces were forced out of everywhere they had, had seized in East Asia, essentially the bombs in, in um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima meant that the war ended and Japan, Imperial Japan was still kind of out in the field, so to speak. Uh, so these things are seven decades old in, in many respects. Um, why have they become heated now? So why write a book about how Asia goes to war over four flashpoints that are quite old? Yeah, well, it's a great, a great question, Nick, and, and thanks to you, and thanks to La Trobe Asia for um, having me here tonight, and thanks uh, to everyone for, for coming along. But the, when I was um, thinking about, I looked around the, the region and w- was looking for a really big question to tackle, it struck me that, um, that Asia is at quite a dangerous moment at, at present. We've got um, a China that's uh, becoming much more assertive and, and confident, more strident, um, a China that's, uh, whose regional ambitions are are becoming more apparent after uh, several decades of, of uh, adhering to a uh, so-called biting and, and hiding um, policy. We've got um, in, the, in the United States in the, in the form of Donald Trump, uh, a president who's, predict, who's uh, behaving a lot less predictably than, uh, than past administrations. Uh, on the Korean Peninsula, we've got um, a North Korea that's nuclearising at quite an alarming rate. And this is something um, all of the, the countries in, in the region quite nervous, including... Um, Australia. And it's certainly, there's, there's a number of, of authors, um, you know, people like Graham Allison from, from Harvard University, there's been a whole slew of books coming out saying that, you know, the chances of war are increasing in, in Asia at, at the moment. There's a, a chance of a big clash, for instance, between the US and, and China. But what I, I didn't see as I surveyed the landscape of these, you know, this cottage industry of books that are coming out is, is exactly how Asia would go to war or, or where it might go to war. And there's lots of analysis about why it might go to war, but and I, I work in a field called strategic studies, and, and one of the, the jobs of a strategic study scholar is, is to try and, despite the fact that we often get given bad press for, for kind of being warm fondlers, is, is to actually to try and, and avoid major power conflict. That's why this field of study was, was set up in the, the late 1940s at the, um, at the ending of the, um, the Cold War. And so what I did is really use the... I mean, war, war could break out anywhere, but logic suggests that and if you want to try and anticipate, it's a very difficult thing to do, but you want to try and anticipate where a conflict is going to break out, um, you kind of look at the, the, the kind of the geographic areas where it's most likely to, to break out or where it's been thought to have been most, most likely to break out. So that was one of the reasons why I looked at these four flashpoints. They're, they're really a, a device for, for getting at that kind of bigger question about um, you know, how likely is war in Asia if it does break out, uh, where is it likely to break out and what can we do to prevent it? You include India, um, because... You know, when I teach this stuff, um, when you run your thumb down the hotspots, the the subcontinent's a big part of this story, um, and whether that's the small matter of 3,000 kilometres of unresolved border disputes between India and China, or the not inconsiderable dispute between India and Pakistan, where two nuclear-armed states are at serious loggerheads, why why not include 
them? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great question, and um, I'm very, very lucky that the, the, uh, my editor for this, this book, Chris Beck, is here this evening, so maybe I can have a chat to him about a sequel called The Five Flashpoints. The Fifth Flashpoint. <laughs> but it, it was, um, in all honesty, it, it's something that I, I did think very, very seriously about. I mean, I think the Flashpoints both... Um, the tensions between uh, China and, and India, and I know Nick that you've you've written about uh, about this last year, the um, when tensions flared up um, over the, the Doklam Plateau in, in the Himalayas. Um, we've also had India and Pakistan go close to uh, to nuclear war um, on, on occasions. But I suppose what um, uh, what led me to to stick with the four flashpoints in in, in East Asia was. Um, uh, I was reading a, a book uh, that was written back in the 1970s by uh, a very famous Australian historian called Geoffrey Blaney. Uh, and this book is a very famous book called The Causes of War. And one, one of the things that Blaney talks about in this book is a phenomenon that he, he describes as, as wide war. Um, it's, it's different than a localised conflict. It's a, conflict that, a type of conflict that doesn't come along all, all that often, but it's, um, it's a type of conflict that brings in um, all of the major powers or, or a number of the... Um, the major powers um, into conflict. And when I, when I look at um, those tensions, say, um, across the, the Doklam uh, Plateau, um, I can't envisage a situation where the, where the US could get drawn into that or Japan could get um, drawn into that. Um, similarly, with a, a conflict involving um, India and Pakistan, they would certainly be serious conflicts, but I think they would, they would remain contained to, to, to a great extent. We wouldn't see them... Um, kind of escalate into a, a conflict that kind of um, was on the scale of, of the, the type of conflict we saw in the First and, and Second World War. So it was really the, the, the prospect for, for wide war that I was really interested in, and I, I saw in, uh, potentially in, in these four flashpoints, although as, as we'll go on to discuss, some of them I think have greater potential than, uh, than others, but it was really that potential for wide war that I was looking at. Yeah, the, the idea of, the, of an Indochina, India-China conflict being contained is a difficult thing to get your head around. <laughs> when you're talking about the scale of those two countries. But I get what you're yeah, saying, yeah. that the prospect of this thing spiralling into systemic conflict that brings particularly yes. the US into the, yes. into the equation. And that, and that might change in the future as well. Like, um, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers, I don't, I don't know if they're one of your sponsors or not, so I, I hope I'm not There's giving... a partner uh, in the room. Yes. They're very welcome to, if they well, wish. Well, he'll, he'll be... Uh, oh, <laughs> no, Mark, good to, good to see you. Um, uh, I, I think they've done some really interesting work looking at... Um, projections for where the world's um, economies are likely to go out to the year 20, 2050. And, I mean, one's always got to be a bit careful about uh, these long-term extrapolations. But I think if, if those projections are, are right and we see China and India becoming the, the world's two leading um, economies by the year 2050, then there, there may be potential for, for a wide war to be sparked if, if those economic changes also translate into strategic changes. But I, I think for the time being, um, that's still some way off. I think for over the next... Um, you know, a couple of decades at least, I, I think the, the prospect for wide war um, emanating out of, out of that, out of South Asia, are, are more remote in my view. Yeah. Well, we might hold that thought on, but um, as a strategic studies bomb fondler, which is a concept, a term I hadn't heard before, but I, I kind of like it, um, <laughs> you're used to the, the, the famous American acronym of BLA. Um, what is, what's your sense on this? If we start now, and we'll unpack it as we go through a conversation in the Q&A, um, what, what do you reckon the percentages of, mm. of, of a wide war teeing off by one of these four flashpoints? Yes, yeah. Well, it's, um, it, it's a, it, it sounds like a simple question, but actually the answer is, is a little bit more, more complicated because one, one of the things that I, that I try and do in the, in the book is not only look at the flashpoints in, in isolation. I mean, they, one of the things I, I try to point out is that they are, they are uh, they're subtly different in the, the mechanisms for control for managing these flashpoints. 
are different in each case. They, they don't lend themselves to a one-size-fits-all approach. But one of the things that I, I try to do in the book is, is also look at the, the interrelationships between the four flashpoints. And I, I borrowed an idea from a very famous um, uh, strategic uh, intellectual, the late Coral Bell. Back in the 1970s, Coral was writing about an idea called a, a crisis slide, where she suggested that in the periods before the First World War and the Second World War, what we saw was a succession of, of international crises, and uh, the momentum uh, from each of those um, started to build, and the pressure started to build, and, and eventually the, the cumulative pressure of, of those international built up and pushed Europe towards war. And, and I think if we look at, at Asia at, um, at the moment, I think there's something similar going on uh, at the moment, that, that we're in the midst of a, a crisis slide that started back around about 2010 when we saw a couple of fairly serious crises on the Korean Peninsula, and subsequently we've seen international crises in the South China Sea and the East China Sea back again on the Korean Peninsula. And I, I argue that there's a, an even bigger crisis brewing in, in Taiwan um, at the moment. So I'm, I'm certainly interested in the relationships between the, the four flashpoints. But at the same time, I think one of the keys to arresting a crisis slide is to try and look at the most dangerous or at, at any given time. And these odds can, can shift over time. For instance, if we were having this conversation back in 12 to 2014, around that period, we'd probably say that the odds of China and Japan going to war were higher then than, than they are now. Um, so certainly now I would, I would say that the odds of that um, are, are lower. Um, I, I rate the, the East China Sea flashpoint as number three on my list of, of the four. It might be surprising to, to many in the audience that um, I actually rank the South China Sea, the one that we here in Australia hear the most about. I, I rank that as the the flashpoint that's least likely to, to combust. I would say the odds of um, that combusting into major power conflict are somewhere in the order of about zero to, to 5%. The two most dangerous are, um, are the Korean Peninsula. I think that certainly a lot of the, the heat has gone out of the, um, the Korean Peninsula, uh, uh, the Trump-Kim summit um, back in, in June and the, the earlier inter-Korean summit. I think those were good developments, but I don't think we're out of the woods on that, on that particular flashpoint yet. I think if, if the diplomacy goes off the rails, as it has done, uh, in the past on this very difficult and protracted flashpoint, we could find ourselves back in a situation where um, Donald Trump begins to look again at, at military options. I think it's, it's unlikely but not inconceivable. The flashpoint that I worry most about and where I think the odds of, of conflict, are, I place them up uh, in the mid-20s to 30% to to range um, are actually in, in Taiwan uh, or over Taiwan, the, the, the flashpoint that we hear least about. Um, and we can perhaps go on uh, to talk a little bit more about why I think that's the most dangerous points at present. Okay, well, I might. Um, well, why don't we start with Taiwan? Because it's it's we've I had had a little order in mind, but we can start with Taiwan and then skirt our way back to the Korean Peninsula. Um, so why? Okay, mm -hmm. if, if we say Taiwan is the one that's most explosive, um, that sort of flies in the face, I think, of a lot of conventional wisdom mm -hmm. of the past few years, which is Taiwan's kind of we sorted that one out for the moment. It's Cross-strait relations are okay. The flights are back up and going. Um, yes, we've got Tsai Ing-wen, but she's nothing like the, mm. the more independent-minded, independence-minded leaders um, of, of uh, previous years. And that you know, we, we think we, from a big picture point of view, the Met got with got this one managed. So why do you think it's so potentially explosive? Yes, well, you're right, Nick. That it's um, it's a flashpoint that's um, had a couple of decades of. Of dormancy, and we've seen this pattern before, um, as far as the Taiwan flashpoint is, is concerned. We, we saw back in the 1950s during the Cold War a couple of fairly serious crises across the Taiwan Strait. One in which the United States uh, threatened to use nuclear weapons against Taiwan. 
uh, sorry, in defence of Taiwan. We saw uh, another crisis in the mid 1990s in the uh, in the lead up to uh, Taiwan's first democratic um, presidential um, election. But certainly, the last couple of decades have been fairly stable on the um, the Taiwan Strait. But these these periods of dormancy have a have a habit of um, uh, of coming to um, crisis situations rather quickly. And I think that if we look at some of the deeper trends that are happening in the triangular relationship between uh, China, Taiwan and the United States at, at present, I see that there's a, a, a dangerous cocktail um, uh, emerging there um, or, or being mixed there at, at the moment. I think we see in Taiwan itself, um, if you look back to the early 1990s when polling on these issues first began, many Taiwanese, in fact, a majority of Taiwanese saw themselves as, as both Chinese and, and Taiwanese. If you look at the polls today, a growing percentage, it's up around the 60% mark um, of uh, the 23 million inhabitants of the island, see themselves as being exclusively Taiwanese. And that, that trend becomes more prevalent. Um, 100% of those see themselves as being exclusively Taiwanese, which is it's pretty understandable. They weren't born on the mainland, they were born on, um, on Taiwan. So I think certainly, um, I think Tsai Ing-wen's um, election is probably a symptom of, of something much deeper that's going on in Taiwan is a, a less and less of sense of affinity with the, with the mainland. Um, and I think that um, certainly that's one of the, the dangerous parts of this equation. I think on the other hand, we see in, in China a leader who's becoming much more assertive in, in relation to, to this issue. He's been, Xi Jinping has been much more strident than his predecessors have, have been over the issue of, of Taiwan. Um, some of his predecessors like Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping suggested this, that this issue could be deferred for 100 or even 1,000 years. Xi Jinping, in a number of big speeches, one delivered at the end of last year and one um, earlier this year, has, has said that, that this flashpoint can no longer be passed, this dispute can no longer be passed from generation to, um, to generation. So I think his credibility is, is, is on the line. Um, and also China's um, ability to, to affect change um, through, through coercion is, is increasing. Then in the United States, you also have um, an administration whose approach to the Taiwan issue um, is very different to, uh, to, to previous um, administrations, the Trump administration. Uh, and admittedly, it's not just a, a feature of Trump, it's also due to congressional pressure has really begun to start leaning in on this issue. And my is that one of the reasons why uh, Trump and the US are leaning in on, on Taiwan on this issue at the moment is actually not a sign of US strength, it's actually a sign of, of US weakness on this particular issue. I think if we look at the, the military balance of power between the United States um, as, as far as this particular flashpoint is concerned, um, the US still holds the upper hand in that balance, but that, that balance is, is gradually uh, reaching an equilibrium point. And because of for reasons of strategic geography, I argue in the four flashpoints that uh, the ability of the United States to come to the defence of Taiwan, as it's been able to in the past, will be gone in, in seven to eight uh, years. It'll be gone within the, the decade. So that's um, one of the reasons why I think that next decade is going to be a particularly uh, dangerous period um, as far as this flashpoint is concerned and why I see it as being the most combustible of the four. So as a result, you, and, and I think the, <clears throat> the most controversial uh, proposition in the book is essentially that the US should see the writing on the wall five to ten years is, is, is really a blink of an eye in, in sort of geopolitical time frame, um, and that the US should basically concede Taiwan and cut them loose. Uh, now, the optics of, and, and, and the strategy, to be blunt, of deserting a democratic ally mm-hmm. uh, to an authoritarian one-party dictatorship of nature um, 
is not good, mm. to say the very least. And then perhaps more beyond the, the sort of optics and, and, and the values question, um, wouldn't this embolden China? Doesn't this say, hey, you know, we're, gonna, we're essentially mm -hmm. rewarding bad behaviour in the same way that we deal with, um, with North Korea because it, it encourages mm -hmm. um, nuclear proliferation, not, not keeps it in check. So how do you respond to the, the notion that this, is, this will basically be kind of grist in the mill of, of an, an aggressive and assertive China? Yes. Well, it's an argument that's, that's often made. I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical as, as to whether the US are abandoning Taiwan, at least in, in the phased way that I suggest. Over, I mean, I'm not, not suggesting in the book that, that the US uh, abandoned Taiwan overnight. Um, what, I'm, what I'm really arguing is that um, the US shouldn't be looking to, to kind of make Taiwan uh, a central uh, feature of its emerging strategic competition with, uh, with China. I think if we are going to see strategic competition between the US and China, the US would be better to wage that competition in areas where it enjoys what the former US Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, talked about during the 1950s as, as situations of strength. And I, I don't think that Taiwan militarily or strategically is a situation of strength for, for the United States in the same way that, that the East China Sea and arguably also the Korean Peninsula are. I, I think that if we look three decades, I can't envisage a scenario where um, the US, uh, where China is able to challenge the US seriously um, in, in a military way in the East China Sea or on the Korean Peninsula. I think that's not going to be the case um, as far as the Taiwan Straits is, is concerned. So, um, I mean, the argument about abandoning a, a democratic ally, one could argue that, um, that the US already did that in, in the 1970s as part of the normalisation of, of US-China relations. It wasn't democratic then, though. That's a very good point, too. Um, but it's also not a, no longer a formal ally. So um, a, a, it's a de facto ally mm. at, at best. So, um, I mean, it may be a move that, that makes, um, um, that makes other... Um, what, I, what I suggest in the book is I tried to... I, I try to suggest, um, rather than just an overnight abandonment in the same way that happened in the late 1970s, I, I try to suggest a, you know, a phased approach where, where the US still continues to sell weaponry to, to Taiwan, but basically tries to encourage Taiwan to, to develop a much greater degree of self-reliance uh, than, than it has at, at the moment. Because I think the reality is, is that over, over time, the, the ability of the, the US to intervene in this, this flashpoint is, is going to diminish over um, over time, and I think that um, you know, in terms of that, that argument about well, what what message does this send in terms of emboldening um, you know China? Um, I think that's where the other argument about um, really holding down on on these situations of strength in, in the East China Sea and the um, and in, uh, and on Korea is, is a way to to, mm -hmm. to avoid that and to make clear that that's where the U.S. defensive perimeter or defensive line is is in Asia. But doesn't I mean the idea of a phased Phased abandonment that doesn't um, cross things too far. Too far. Um, but surely, the moment you 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 kind of signal to some degree that this is not the priority it once was, mm -hmm. the door is basically open. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I'm yeah. I'm a bit unsure how you how you practically manage phasing that. But but let's turn to Korea because you've you've sort of um, foreshadowed the sense there that um, where you know if you if you're imagining a kind of new American strategic region in which essentially. A degree of concession has been given to to Taiwan towards the PRC. Um, the opposite is happening on the Korean mm. Peninsula, and you, again, contrary to what a lot of people would argue um, at the moment, where you see boy, you know, you hear, hear a lot of voices saying, "Let's cut some kind of deal with mm. with North Korea." 
whether that's a deal that says, you know, the CVID mantra of mm. complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, or whether it's something, some threshold below mm. that, um, the, uh, there's a strong view that says we can parlay a deal and reduce the tensions in the Korean Peninsula and ultimately have a have a more mm. have a higher levels of strategic stability. You say double no, double down mm. on this one. Yes. Um, and hold the line on the Korean mm. Peninsula. Yeah. Surely this is increasing tensions, not decreasing them. Yes. I mean, I, 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 would, I would think it was fantastic if we could reach a, some kind of deal or if a, if a diplomatic, um, some kind of diplomatic solution to the, the Korean flashpoint could be arrived at. I just don't see that, that happening. Um, and I think if we look back over the, the past quarter century of, of, this, um, of this flashpoint... Um, a lot of the things that are that are happening now um, are, are really a repeat of, of history of, of uh, the same patterns that have that have occurred um, before. Um, I think there have been some important gains made. The um, four point agreement um, that was reached at, in Singapore between Donald Trump and North Korean leader um, Kim Jong Un. There's been some progress on on those um, those four points of agreement. Particularly a couple of weeks ago, um, the North Koreans returned. Some of the remains of, um, of U.S. Um, personnel killed during the, the Korean War, and I think that for the, the families of those um, uh, of those personnel, that's a, that's a great thing that, that that happened. It's an important symbolic gesture, an important confidence-building measure. But I think when we when we really start to move up to the the area of high politics and, and what, what I think the U.S. is trying to get out of this, the, the denuclearization um, of North Korea, um, as you say, that I think now the term is a fully fully final, verifiable disarmament. Um, I think the acronym changes every... CVID is yes, very yes. 2004, yeah. But um, essentially the, 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 same, the same thing. I, I think that, the, um, that that's the, the, the US uh, objective and the status, stated US objective. There's been some uh, suggestions, um, including by um, you know, a very eminent uh, Stanford professor, a nuclear scientist called Siegfried Hecker, that's uh, suggested that, that that process is likely to take 10 to 15 years to, to play out. On the other hand, um, you know, if I if I was um, Kim Jong Un, I, I can't imagine a situation in which I would give up my nuclear weapons. And I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm I'm quite moderate. I'm I'm a, I'm a big softy on some of these. Uh, this, this is a, a you know, for, for Kim Jong Un, um, I, I just can't see him giving up his last um, bargaining chip. I think we'll, and we've we've already begun to see in the in the, the few months since the, the Singapore summit. Um, there, there have been some sticking points. And this is going to be a very long, difficult and drawn-out, protracted diplomatic process. Um, if we get to that, that end point 10 to 15 years from now and, and a diplomatic agreement is reached, I think over that time frame, the chances for things to go off the rails are, are, are pretty high. And, and so what I argue in the book is, rather than the US going back and, and looking at military options, which I don't think there is really a credible military option for the US on, on the Korean Peninsula, at least one with acceptable costs and risks, that, uh, that's where the argument comes down, that I think uh, the US um, and its allies should, should really look to, to adopt a very robust deterrence posture to leave um, the North Koreans in, in no doubt that, that if they use their, their nuclear weapons, that that'll be the end of North Korea as a functioning society with the hope of, of deterring North Koreans from ever using those, those, um, those terrible weapons. So that's um, really where the doubling down comes in. I, I hope that diplomacy continues to... To progress and history doesn't always repeat, but I think based on on history and based what we're seeing in the months since the Singapore summit, I'm not confident that we're going to see it continue to progress as we might hope. So the the sense of doubling down is essentially to say 
We've got to learn to live with a nuclear North Korea. Yeah. We have to hem it in behind a robust deterrence framework. Yeah. What happens if, if the Trump administration does strike a deal? So let's mm. say for whatever reason, whether it's um, you know the current crises, Trump feels he needs a foreign policy win. A lot of critics felt that the, the Singapore mm. summit was, was more style than substance mm. in terms of a lot of headlines and not a lot of progress, although mm. I, think, I do think it played an impo- I do agree that it played an important circuit breaker. Um, in terms of what was getting to be quite a quite a tense period, um, but let's say they do strike a deal for whatever reason, um, in which you've got some kind of concession towards uh, North Korea by the United States in return for which North Korea gives up much, but it's nuclear weapons. Yes, yeah. Then what happens? Well, I think I mean I know it's not your argument. But no, no, <laughs> I, I think it's a very good question, and I. I I think that certainly if, if anyone can strike a deal, I think the, the good news is, is that Donald Trump is probably the president out of, out of anyone that, that, that we've had in, in recent times that, that could, has, has, the, has the ability to, to strike such a, such a deal. Um, but the, the, question, the big question I would have is that what, what kind of deal is this? Is if it's, um, you know, for instance, if it's, if it's a deal between the US and China, and one could, one could envisage a, um, a, such a deal between the US and China where... Say the United States um, agrees to to, to rein in get back from Taiwan um, in return for Xi Jinping really using the considerable economic leverage that he has a, against North Korea. That, one could imagine that that kind of deal. One could imagine a deal where the U.S. and, and North Korea uh, strike a, a deal, you know, bi- bilaterally, where um, Kim Jong Un agrees to give up some of his uh, some of his weapons. Um, namely the ones that can hit the United States in return for you know, diplomatic recognition or some form of, of energy um, support or a, a peace treaty. Um, one could imagine that, that kind of deal as well. But I think whichever of, of those deals that, that you strike, one of the difficult things is that, as you, as you know from your own work, Nick, it's a very diverse region um, and there's a lot of... Um, a lot of influential players in, in this, this part of, of the world. And even the, the smaller and medium-sized countries have a degree of, of influence. So, for instance, you could imagine a, a US-China bargain or deal that, that was struck. Um, Taiwan is probably not going to go down without a fight in that, in that situation. You could imagine Taiwan then doing something that the United States and China would both be um, opposed to, and that's doing as it, as it did during the 1960s and 1970s and even as recently as the 1980s, looking to develop its own nuclear weapons as a means of, of defending itself. You could see it's um, certainly under significant pressure as a result of, of China cutting off its um, economic assistance, looking elsewhere, like looking to, to Russia for greater support or looking uh, to other transnational uh, criminal groups and, and illicit elements, uh, selling its um, nuclear know-how to other rogue regimes around the, around the world. So that, that kind of grand bargain, say, between the US and China is going to be difficult to implement in a very diverse um, and complex region such as, as Asia. I think the same, the same happens um, as a result of US-North Korea deal over the, um, the international, intercontinental ballistic missiles. You could, for instance, envisage a situation there where the whole US network of, of alliances in Asia unwrapped. Uh, the South Koreans and particularly the Japanese become nervous that they that they can no longer trust in that nuclear umbrella that that the U.S. has provided to them, um, saying, "Well, we'll you don't need to develop your own nuclear weapons because we'll protect you with ours." You go back to a situation similar to that during the Cold War, where 
Japan starts to ask, would the United States really be willing to sacrifice San Francisco or Los Angeles in defense of Tokyo? You could potentially see a more hardline president in, in South Korea than the current um, president, Moon Jae-in, asking the same, same question. So you could begin to see an unraveling of that, that alliance network. And um, I mean, that, that might be something that, that Trump um, might not be all that concerned about, but I think that in the best interests of the United States, and I think there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, um, certainly people in, in the establishment in the United States would be opposed to that as, as well. One last question, just sort of following up on, on that specific issue, is regardless of whether we see a, a deal or, or um, a kind of hardening up on the position on, on, North, on the Korean Peninsula, I think we're looking realistically at a world in which North Korea is a nuclear weapons mm. state. Uh, and you mentioned that um, that old abandonment fear that, mm. that client states have who are under the quote-unquote mm. nuclear umbrella. Uh, some people have made the argument that North Korea's nuclear weapons essentially make the nuclear umbrella unreliable. Now, I was wondering where you stand on this, because I, I actually tend to think that the circumstance is not that different from the Cold War. Mm. So the question mark, the same question mark you had in your mind if you're sitting in Tokyo about... The, the, the promise the Americans give you to defend you mm. from a Soviet attack is kind of the same as, mm. as the attack from North Korea, where some scholars and, and others have argued that North Korea is different from, from the Soviet Union because the US is not involved in this big systemic conflict, Cold War-style ideological conflict that means that there's a lot more on the table in terms of a kind of um, credibility issue. That is, the US has to defend a, a Tokyo from... Um, from attack, that it doesn't have to, to quite the same degree with, with North Korea. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I stand in a, in a very similar position to you on that, um, Matt, Nick, and I think it's, it's not all that dissimilar to the Cold War. And I mean, there's, um, if you look at, at deterrence and having an effective deterrence strategy, um, you know, the capability element is, is, one, is one part of it. And certainly the US has the capability to, to strike North Korea. Um, we think that North Korea, uh, if it can't already strike parts of the United States that's certainly getting pretty close to developing that, that capability. So certainly that there's, the, there's the capability um, side of it. There's also the, the, the intentions. Having, a, having a, an effective deterrence strategy, you, you need to convince your opponent um, that, um, that you're willing to use those, those weapons. And I think certainly that's, that's a challenge for the United States, I think. And, and during the Cold War, it was able to, to rise to that, that challenge. During the um, Eisenhower administration, it developed... Um, um, measures that, that it was able to assure its allies sufficiently that um, that it would be that it would be willing to use nuclear weapons in uh, in a more limited conflict in defence of of allied capitals, um, even though that would put the United States at, at risk. I think there's some pretty hard thinking that needs to be done in, in the United States to what today to what an Eisenhower strategy looks like today. But I think that it that it is possible, and um, I think certainly my own sense is is I don't. And unless it's um, on the verge of collapse, and even even then, it, it's probably an outlandish scenario where North Korea actually wants to to use its nuclear weapons in an offensive way. I think it's got it's got those weapons primarily for for defensive reasons. So I think that that the nuclear umbrella still has some utility. Uh, it, it may need some adjustment, particularly on that um, that intention side and, and the the assurance or the reassurance of. Um, of allies, but um, I think that uh, um, not uh, some still pretty serious opposition domestically within Japan 
to Japan going going nuclear. I think that we've still got it's not inconceivable, but we've still got a way a ways to go. A situation where um, nuclear proliferation starts breaking out in, in Asia. Okay, let's let's move away from the potential of nuclear proliferation and apocalypse on the Korean Peninsula to the far more relaxed environment of the South China Sea, <laughs> um, where you can go scuba diving on a Malaysian. Uh, atoll, which is also reclaimed land, but but by all accounts, quite good scuba diving. Um, you're actually pretty sanguine, as you said at the mm. at the top, uh, about the prospects of this flashpoint teeing off, and, and actually, I tend to agree with that broader proposition. Uh, but you also then, I think, take a step that would leave many kind of little mm. un, unsure as to whether they want to go with you, and that is essentially saying. This is the South China Sea is where we should give China some space. Mm. Thinking about that again, that new strategic dispensation in the region, the new balance. This involves essentially going back to the old historical norm, where mm. this is part of a Chinese sphere of influence, or however you want to conceive it. Mm. Um, why do you think this is the case? And surely, you know, to ask the the dubious provocative, the dubious uh, historical analogy, but mm. but I'll do it because I can. Um, is doesn't this set the kind of Czechoslovakia analogy to to, uh, to an authoritarian China? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, th- I guess a couple of points in in, in response to to the question, Nick. And the first is is that um, I mean, part of it is is just the the re- as the the military balance of power shifts. Um, the, the new um, U.S. Indo-Pacific commander, uh, Admiral Davison, during his his testimony before he he succeeded Harry Harris as the uh, the Indo-Pacific um, commander, basically said that that short of of conflict, um, short of armed conflict, that the U.S. no longer really has any strategic options in in the South China Sea as far as um, China's artificial. Um, islands are, are concerned, and um, I think the geography, the strategic geography of that flashpoint, just really favours the, the Chinese too strongly o- over time. I mean, certainly there there are limits to their their ability to project power over that entire body of water. I certainly don't suggest that that the United States or, uh, overnight should just stop sailing its ships um, through those those waters. But I, I, once again, it's a little bit like the Taiwan argument. I, I argue that. For a de-emphasis of that particular area and its emerging strategic competition with um, with China, um, I, I argue for an, an ending to the freedom of, of navigation uh, operations. And you know, sailing ships and aircraft inside the, the 12 nautical mile zones around those disputed features, partly because I just I think that they're 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 ineffectual. And I, I think over, over time, um, I think we're going to see a situation where the the ability of, of of the United States to, to continue to um, to control in, in, in that particular area is going, going to diminish. But then then it gets to the I suppose the, the the second point you made about the you know the appeasement argument or is this kind of like Neville Chamberlain um, revisited? And certainly there are some interesting parallels between um, Nazi Germany and and China um, today. I mean there's there's a lot of parallels between. Um, most great powers, and not, not all great powers, but most great powers as, as they rise behave in a, in a very similar way to, um, to how China is behaving today or to how Nazi Germany be- behaved in the lead up to the Second World War. But I think that there are also some very important differences. And one of the key differences is I think if you look back to the, the history of that Second World War, um, Hitler was basically hell-bent on, on achieving hegemony no matter what the cost, and he was, he was hell-bent on using military means to do that. I think one of the differences is, I think Xi Jinping is, is intent on, on achieving hegemony as, as well, 
Um, but I think he's, he's trying to do that in, in a, uh, using all measures short of, of war. He doesn't really want to, want to get there by, by using military measures, at least not, not at this point in, in time. So I think that, you know, one of, one of the questions to ask is what's, what's the US strategic objective in, in this situation? Is it to remain, is it to remain the, the dominant power, to remain the, the benign hegemon um, of Asia and, and to, to continue to exert control over the, this whole region? Or is it to China from becoming the hegemon in, in Asia? And I think if you look back historically over the history of US-Korean strategy, I think that that latter objective has actually been the paramount objective, that, that the US wants to prevent uh, a potentially hostile power gaining control of that um, of, of the Asian region, and particularly that, that Eurasian landmass. And I think what I try and suggest in the book is a way that, that the US can, can do that, and that's where I think it's different than the, the kind of the Neville Chamberlain analogy, because I think if, if the US establishes where these situations of strength exist and makes clear that it's going to defend those, those situations of strength, potentially even through the, the use of military force if, if need be, I think that's the, uh, the most critical for having a stable balance of power going forward in, into the future. So I think if I was to look at a historical analogy, it would probably be more the analogy of the Korean War a few, a few years after the Second World War, where Dean Acheson, the, the person who I kind of borrow his ideas of situations of, of strength, um, made a very famous speech just leading up to the, the Korean War where he talked, to, in, in a very similar way, he talked about a, a US defence perimeter in Asia and talked about the areas of, of Asia that the US would defend and, and the areas that it wouldn't defend. And Acheson, in, in that speech, um, left out Korea and, and Joseph Stalin saw that as, as a, a green light to, um, to say to, to Kim jong uh, Kim Il-sung, the, the grandfather of North Korea's current, can go ahead now and, and attack the South. And I, I think the mistake the US made at, at that point in time was they, they, weren't, they, they didn't get their, the, the defensive line right. They, they subsequently changed their mind and, and under a UN banner went, went in and supported the, the South Koreans. So I think that for me that's a real historical analogy we should be, be looking at. it. And I think, I think at the moment, and it's not just under the Trump administration, I think it was also... The same thing, uh, similar thing was going on under the Obama administration. The US is, at the moment, trying to work out where its defensive perimeter in, in Asia, where, exactly where that, where that line is, where it would be willing to, to use military force if, if um, push came to shove, and, and where it... We, we've seen it um, kind of leaning in and then lacking on, the, um, on the, the South China Sea, is that it hasn't really worked out where that, where that line is. And I think that the key to avoiding a Chamberlain-type scenario is is getting a much clearer sense of, of where that defensive perimeter or where that defensive line uh, exists and, and then um, being credible in, in the defence of that. Because yeah, one of the things I, I really admire about that book is, is the sense that you know, we, we know that it's, frankly, impossible to imagine that the US and its allies can sustain a strategic balance in Asia as if it was always going to be 1998. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. that's kind of sort of where we still are. And I think what you do is think through carefully how adjustments need to be made where we don't have to give up themes of, of, um, of, a, of, yeah, of a significant American presence in the region, but recognise that there is a, a shifting balance of power. But what, are, what, what do you think are the consequences, though, of basically saying South China Sea is a Chinese lake once again? What are the implications yes, of that? I actually don't think there is... There is um the consequences are as, are as severe as, as a lot of alarmist commentators um, suggest. Um, if we, we take the Australian case, for, for example, um, 
a lot of commentators have, have said that, that this waterway, this body of water is, is immensely significant to Australia because it's very hard to estimate exactly. As, lots as, of shipping, yes, lots. <laughs> but um, somewhere around the 60 of, of our exports go through um, and a lot, of, a lot of energy exports go through these, um, these, uh, these waters. Um, but if you actually look at where, where those exports are going to, the vast majority of them go, go to, to China. So I, I think that, I mean, China itself, um, it doesn't use the terms you know, free and open Indo-Pacific, but I think China is just as, as interested in, in having um, you know, free and, and open waters as, as any other country in the, um, is in, in the region. And I think one of the reasons why we're seeing it um, start to think about where its own perimeter, its own kind of defensive line or its own strategic perimeter is, is, is precisely for that, that reason. It's, it's kind of the constant denials on the part of, of the US and us and, um, and other allies that, that you know, we're not trying to contain China. There's still a very strong perception in Beijing that that's exactly what, what we're trying to do. And um, so I think that you know, that's one of the reasons why the, the, the Chinese themselves are starting to, to, to push out and, and try and gain a, a greater sense of strategic space because they're worried about being, um, being hemmed in. So I, I'm actually less worried about the um, Chinese dominance in the, in the South China Sea um, or control of that, that body of water. Um, I think in, in a conflict scenario, um, yes, those, um, those uh, straits that, that, that kind of connect the Indian Ocean to the, uh, the Pacific are strategically in, important, um, but hopefully we can, we can avoid that, uh, that scenario eventuating. Well, let's turn to the last of the flashpoints um, in the East China Sea. So this is the dispute centre, the centres around uh, the, the, the rocky islands that the Japanese call the Senkaku and the mm-hmm. Chinese call the Diaoyu. Um, it's, it's a surprisingly low-profile dispute mm-hmm. in, within the Australian context at any rate, um, and, uh, and yet it's, in your estimation, mm-hmm. one, of the, you know, one of the more explosive... Uh, and certainly one of the more... Um, I mean, and it's a place where the US, China and Japan all have vital interests mm. at stake. Um, you've got it on the ledger of the US should, should draw its line. Mm. Why? I mean, you look at... You kind of, if, if you just approach the region blankly and look at it and you say the US is going to cut Taiwan loose, but mm. it's going to draw a line on the sand, so to speak, on these rocky islands yes. 100 yeah. nautical miles to the northeast of Taiwan. Yes, yeah. Why these? Why defend here and not yes, the twenty-three uh, million Democrats in? Uh, yes, uh, so small D Democrats, I should say, yes, uh, um, in Taiwan. Yes. I think partly because it can. Um, I think if you look at once again the military balance of, of power, if you, I mean, the, the U.S. And, and the Japanese militaries, uh, particularly um, the, the way in which they're operating around the, the East China Sea, they're, they're more and more in, interdependent. They're, they're being very, very closely. Um, the systems they operate are, are, are very in, interlinked. Um, so I think that certainly um, the, the Japanese military it, itself, I mean, it's a, a reasonably small military, but it's a very potent, um, you know, very powerful air force, very, uh, very potent, uh, potent uh, navy as well. Um, so I think that combined with the United States, um, at least uh, into the foreseeable future, uh, if you look at the balance of power between the, the US and, and J- Japan on the one side and and China on, on the other. Um, it favours um, the US and, and Japan very, very strongly. In fact, the case can even be made that over the next 10 to 20 years, Japan is one of the few militaries that could potentially hold its own against China because, you know, it's, it's very modern and sophisticated um, air and naval forces. So I think one of the reasons why I suggest that the US should, 
should double down and try and maintain that situation of, of strength. And it might actually mean shifting even more assets, military assets, into that theatre is to try and preserve that, that favourable balance of power, which I don't think it will be able to do in, um, in Taiwan or, or the South China Sea. And the, the other reason is just because of the, the importance of that US-Japan um, alliance. Uh, you'll often hear US policymakers talk about that alliance as being the cornerstone of the, the American presence um, I in, we this, were. in this part of the world. <laughs> and, and I think it's certainly, um, it's certainly possible to, to think about um, the military presence um, in, in Asia um, without, its, without an alliance with Taiwan because it's, it's done that um, you know, since the, the late 1970s. Um, it's even possible um, to imagine the US maintaining a presence um, in Asia without the US-Korea alliance. In fact, you know, George Kennan, one of the, the great American strategists, um, the architect of the containment strategy, actually proposed something even more radical than, than I'm proposing. He, he proposed a, a much greater pulling back from, um, from, from Asia. But, um, but I think... Um, I mean, I think pulling back from Korea would be the wrong thing to, to do, and I think that the US for a number of decades now has... Um, it's not just a, um, a feature of, of Trump. I, I think that the importance, the strategic importance of that alliance with South Korea for, for some decades now. But, but it is possible to, to envisage the US maintaining a presence in Asia without the alliance with South Korea. It's very difficult, though, to uh, imagine the US continuing to maintain a presence in Asia without that alliance with Japan. I think if you take... If you take that alliance away, um, I think the basically the you know I think it's unlikely the U.S. will retreat from Asia, but that that would be I think the step that would would really signal a U.S. retreat from from Asia. And I think it's one of the reasons why we've seen uh, U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis come out and and say that in you know in the case of a conflict in in the, the East China Sea, um, Japan Mutual Security Treaty continues to apply. The same thing that. Um, it, it extends to, to such a contingency in the same way that um, President Obama um, twice when he was president became the, the first president to publicly state that um, that, that treaty applied to, to a contingency in the, the East China Sea. So that's why I differentiate the East China Sea from, from the Taiwan flashpoint. But do you think, I, I remember that very clearly that 2013, I think it was 2013 when Abe, Abe was back and he went to the US in December and was mm. like, please say Senkakus, please say Senkakus, please say, and he didn't. And then he went in April, and he did. And I, mm. and, and I remember thinking, something's shifted here, where mm. for decades, certainly conservative Japanese politics have wanted that mm. public explicit commitment that says, these islands are covered. Mm. This is as if it were you know, Tokyo Bay. Yes. Um, and Obama gave, gave in. I, I think he gave yes. in. I, I, think it was, I don't think it was a considered strategic choice. Why do you think that was the case? I mean, do you think it wasn't a recognition of weakness or do you think it was getting ahead of, mm. um, of, of a kind of dynamic that you're describing? Yes. I mean, I, I think it was, and, and in part, it was, it was to try and reassure the, the, the Japanese. This, this came at a time, you know, you'll, you'll remember back to 2013, 2014, that, that tensions were, uh, were really heating up around the, the East China Sea following Japan's nationalisation of the... Kakawa Islands back in uh, September of 2012 um, in Salo. But I think partly it was also a, a reflection of the fact that strategic competition by this stage was, was really, you know, starting to, to really heat, heat up in, in Asia. You know, that the crisis slide that I, that I talk about was really beginning to, um, to, to gain momentum. And, and I think we, we saw a, a return of... Um, or we've, we've been seeing a return of, of, um, of what might be termed power politics to, 
um, to, to Asia, where a lot of you know a lot of these things like alliance commitments and um, start to become more more important, and um, and countries become more insistent on them, and, and allies want want to reassure um, one one another. I mean, we saw a similar phenomenon in the in the period, um, you know, before the as, as well that kind of tightening of alliances that occurred during during that time. So that's. Um, you know, one of the um, the, the features of the, of the crisis slide that I, I think was occurring, and which which explains um, that that shift in, in at least publicly that um, that shift in, in the U.S. commitment to uh, to Japan during that period. Before I throw to the floor for some questions, I want to just try to draw out a couple of themes in the book, um, and then and then ask you to look in your crystal ball. But one of the things that really struck me about the the kind of new balance that you describe. Uh, and it relates to your earlier remarks about the South Asia, the South Asian disputes being kind of separate. Is you you describe a region which, um, from a geopolitical kind of big conflict point of view, in which the Indian Ocean region remains pretty distinct and separate from uh, the Western Pacific or the East Asian theatre, and um, describes a region where there's big strategic dynamics are not Indo-Pacific, but are in fact East Asian and, and Asia-Pacific. And in particular, you're essentially recommending the United States that focus its efforts on Northeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is that a, a, a fair reading? Or like, and, and, and from that, it, it seems to be why on earth would the Americans have go to the trouble of describing an Indo-Pacific strategy uh, with an Indo-Pacific command of stuff when... The strategic dynamic, as you discern it, is is not Indo-Pacific at all. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the Indo-Pacific concept. I mean, it's a very nice kind of neat neat concept. It's one that Australia has is quite proud of the fact that it's it's been a, a champion, a bit of a cheerleader for this um this particular concept. I think it's a very it's a very nice concept in in theory. Um, I think it's one that makes a lot of sense for Australia because it's kind of big and expansive and inclusive, and it, it means that those questions about whether we're we're part of this region or not. Um, kind of are laid to rest if this if this concept um, catches on, but I think it's also a concept that, in practice, is going to be much more difficult to to implement. Um, particularly if we see, as I predict, we we will, as we I would argue, we're already seeing an intensification of of strategic competition. I think certainly in in peacetime, um, you can you can call the region any anything you want, and it doesn't doesn't really matter all all that much. I mean, regions are kind of a Imagine they're very they're very subjective anyway. They don't exist in reality. But but I think once you get into a a period of, of strategic competition, and I think you know the, the the tensions over the Doklam Plateau, for instance, are a good example of that. Um, Japan sent an expression of support to India during that uh, that particular standoff, but you didn't see the US or, or Japan sending sending troops to the, to that. And I, I don't think if if tensions really flared up into a major conflict. I don't think we'd see that sort of vision uh, emerging across the Doklam Plateau. Similarly, um, if we saw tensions flaring up over the, the Taiwan Strait or in the East China Sea, I, I don't think we'd see a situation where India was, was sending forces to support the, the US and Japan and, um, and, and that, that particular con- uh, um, a conflict over, over the East China Sea. So I think that, that the idea kind of breaks, breaks down, it, it, it kind of... I suppose I would argue that that flies in the face of the, of the argument that the Indo-Pacific isn't emerging as, as a strategic system. Because for me, the definition of a strategic system is a system where developments in one part of that system kind of resonate or affect other, other parts. And I think that if, if you have something major like a conflict breaking out in one part of the countries in, that, in, in another part of that, 
that system aren't, aren't becoming involved, they're just staying completely out of it, then that to me suggests that it's not, it's not a strategic system. So, um, so I, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I see uh, a situation where we're likely to see two separate, largely separate strategic systems. There may at, at times be, be a degree of, of interaction be, between them, but I think largely the South Asian um, and the, uh, the, the, the East Asian uh, strategic systems will continue to, to remain uh, relatively separate. The second thing that really strikes me about the book is is the role of nationalism, and this mm-hmm. is the thing I think, you know, if if you're kind of sitting there going, what's the what's the what's the joker in the pack in mm-hmm. all of this? Which not just nationalism seems to be back with a bit of a vengeance, but it's a pretty angry, chauvinistic, mm-hmm. puritanical kind of nationalism mm-hmm. in, in lots of parts of the region, whether you know, India, um, Japan, uh, certainly Xi Jinping, but but you know, arguably. A kind of that's a kind of nationalism that that's behind that's the wind in the sails of, yes, of Trump's election. Um, why why is it back? And mm. and from a you know, f- you know strategic thinkers often don't talk about nationalism. Yes, it's so it's about you know poise and equipoise and balances of power and throw mm. weights yes, and it's all very fairly dispassionate. Um, how do you sort of try to factor that into the analysis? And what what can we do about it? Yes, well, I mean I think that as you know is a very complex. Phenomenon, and it, it, it has come from a, comes from a number of, of different different sources. But I think its prevalence in in Asia today can be attributed to a, to a number of uh, of factors. One is is the fact that a number of these countries that have had uh, very very difficult pasts. Um, you, you think about a um, a country like China, for instance, and the, the travails that it's been through. Um, you know, the, the tens of millions that died, for instance, during the, the Cultural Revolution, the um, the so-called century of humiliation that. Um, where, where China was essentially as once great civilization was carved up um, at the hands of, of colonial powers. Um, and I think that there's, you know, a, a, a large proportion of, of the Chinese population are, are really proud now about what their, their country has achieved, what their nation has, has achieved. Um, I think the same is, is true for others, like, um, like the Japanese, um, even the, the Koreans as, as well. So I think that that's one of the, um, the fact. A number of these countries have, um, you know, school book curriculums that... Um, also, where a lot of this, you know, very strong nationalistic sentiment has, has been imbued um, uh, with these um, with the citizens of these countries since kindergarten age, um, partly as a, as as a way of, of holding these these um, you know often fractious nations together and kind of building a, a sense of resilience amongst the the country. So I think that the roots of it are, are very deep seated. Um, and its um, its prevalence is, is you know it is it is very worrying. Uh, be familiar with the, the old saying that history history doesn't repeat, uh, but it does rhyme. And I think we're seeing it's one of the reasons why I'm attracted to the idea of the that the crisis slide because if we look at the period in Europe prior to the First World War, there are a number of similarities between. Uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of differences, but there are also some very strong similarities between uh, that region on on the eve of the First World War in Asia today. And um, we talk you know we've talked about. The, the tightening of, of alliances. I think the, the kind of the rise of nationalism is, is, is another commonality between the, um, the, the two theatres. But where I think that that nationalism is, is most dangerous is in, is in the case of the, the East China Sea flashpoint. I think that um, if you look at it at a, at a purely collective level, it, it doesn't make any sense at all for, for two of the world's leading economies to, to end up fighting, fighting a war with each other. You know, the, the idea is that, that China and Japan would go to, go to war over a set of rocks in the, the East China Sea just seems ludicrous to us sitting here in, in, uh, in Melbourne here um, this evening. But I think that's where the, the nationalism comes into play and potentially becomes 
um, you know, could potentially become very flammable if you have a, you know, you look, you look at the, the, the levels of, of anti-Japanese sentiment in, in China, some of the polling that's done on, on this suggests it's, you know, somewhere up in the, the 90% um, bracket of, of Japanese um, have a very uh, strong, have very strong anti-Chinese sentiment and the same proportion of a very strong anti-Japanese sentiment. And, and all, all you need is, uh, you know, something like what happened back in, in April of 2001 when a US um, surveillance aircraft and a, and a Chinese jet fighter collided um, over the waters of the, the South China Sea. You get that happening over the East China Sea um, between a, a Chinese and a Japanese um, aircraft and you, you, you start to, to see that nationalism start to, to ignite and, and massive anti-Japanese demonstrations taking place over hundreds of Chinese cities. As we've seen before, you, you have the makings there for a situation that could could very easily spiral out of control. So that's where I, I see the nationalism kind of playing into this. You're right that, that often strategists don't pay enough attention to this. Given the, the nature of the theatre we're, we're looking at and, and the very strong, pervasive sense of, of nationalism um, in this theatre, I think it's something we need to pay more attention to. All right, I'm going to come to the crystal ball at the end, but I know people will be desperate to pitch their own questions at you. Um, is it possible to get the house lights lit up a bit just so I can see a little... Um, bit. But let's go um, over here. So, Matt, if you could just hand the microphone. Uh, yeah, Brendan, um, I have a double-pronged question. Uh, climate scientists are saying that if we don't drastically start cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions, which we're not doing, despite the Paris Agreement and so forth, uh, that we're going to move into uh, 40 2100 uh, and a lot of people are talking about climate wars. There's been a number of uh, books. And what happens when the glaciers in the Himalayas mm. have melted? And then the other part of my question is, um, well, I certainly favor denuclearization in North Korea. Isn't there a bit of a double standard here? Why not get uh, the United States and uh, India and China and Pakistan to also denuclearize? I mean, Two both, small questions. Yes, yeah, both, both, both really, uh, really straightforward, really, really good questions. Um, I think I might take the 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 uh, the second one, uh, the second question first. I think that's certainly the argument that the North Koreans have um, have, have put forward. Um, the, the argument about, um, and I think that's one of the, the reasons why I see there being a real real sticking point, and why I mean, I, I don't like to be pessimistic, but I, I think I am pretty pessimistic on on this particular flashpoint. Um, because I, I think it's it's one of the real sticking points on on the diplomacy around this flashpoint. That when, if you look back over the last um, the last twenty five years, whenever the um, the North Koreans have talked about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, they they mean something very different than than when the Americans talk about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And I think when the Koreans talk about this, the North Koreans talk about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, they they have in mind what you're talking about. They um, they they argue that the, that that all all countries should be that are involved in this flashpoint should be uh, getting rid of their their nuclear weapons. Um, whereas when when the United States talks about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, it's talking um, purely about North Korean denuclearization, and and before any any kind of other uh, kind of um, benefits will be provided, that 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 needs to be kind of the, the first um, the first step um, along along the way. So I think that's that issue of denuclearization. I think the point you make is a is a fair one. It's one of the the reasons why I think there's going to be a sticking point because there's different interpretations of that. On the um, on the, the climate wars, uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert on on climate. 
that um, I mean, certainly that's that's something that I, I worry about in, in terms of um, you know even even my own uh, children's life, lifetime. Um, but it's um, it's something which, it, at least in in terms of the scope of this this book, um, I'm kind of really only looking at over the the next kind of twenty to to, to thirty years. So I'd um, I mean I could hazard a, an answer at it, but it's not not really my area of uh, of expertise. So I'd uh, I think I'd probably best not. But uh, it's, it's not? an important area. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, got Ben Habib here, and then at the back there. So in the middle here, pass the microphone. With there was a second mic, but it seems to have run away. Maybe took fright at the thought of thermonuclear Armageddon. So, and then at the back end. Thanks, Brendan. Uh, seems to me that uh, hegemonic transition is this variable that's underpinning all of the flashpoints that mm. you're talking about, uh, and this is really a dynamic process uh, that has a ticking clock on American primacy. So, is this ticking clock on American power something that you think might make these flashpoints more volatile? Is there a, a line in the sand where the Americans might be forced to fight to maintain their position? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Ben, and I think the um, I think where where that dynamic worries me most is is, um, is in relation to the Taiwan flashpoint. That's that's the one where um, I think there is really a, a error in terms of um, unless we see something something radical in terms of some, you know, dramatic um, kind of technological um, change in terms of the, the, the weaponry that, that different countries are, are able to use. I think based on, on the available information that, that we have, um, the, the ability of, of the US to come to Taiwan's defence is, is gradually gradually diminishing and, and will be gone within that decade. So the question, question then is what, what does the US do with the time it's got in, in that decade? And... Um, and you know, some some have argued that um, that and that the US needs to to now really bolster its its position and, and really, while it's still got that advantage to be to be really using that advantage, I think changes in that approach because I think out of all of the flashpoints, um, and they're, they're all they're all different, even though they're they're interconnected. Taiwan is the one that I think is the 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 one that's the, the rawest for for Beijing, the the one where it's it's come out. Consistently over over decades, and, and said that this is a core interest. And, and when, as, as you would know, when when the Chinese use the term core interest, they they are using that to refer to uh, to issues over which they would use military force in, in the defence of those um, in the defence of that particular issue. So I so I worry that that the US potentially leaning in and taking a more robust approach during this kind of closing window could actually end up provoking the, the Chinese. I, th- I think um, if the US moved. I think she still believes that um, that there are other measures short of war that that he can he can use to to try and, and reclaim uh, Taiwan. And I think as long as he believes that that the chance of, of war across the, the Taiwan Strait are, are fairly remote, because I think um, she doesn't want a, a military operation that would would still entail costs and risks for um, for the Chinese. But um, I think my worry is is through either a, a Taiwanese declaration of, of independence or or by America leaning leaning too far forward um, on this particular flashpoint that, that it ends up provoking uh, Xi into doing something that he otherwise wouldn't do. And there is that sense, I think, also, that if you've got a logic as to as to for, that's to say, then then that will help you have a clearer sense as to whether you need to see off a, a threat within a fixed time frame when primacy is an end mm-hmm. to an inter- mm-hmm. unto itself or questions of honour and prestige and, and that sort of thing factor in, then that time 
I think that time pressure becomes much more acute and leads to potentially mm -hmm. curious outcomes. Now the next one was at the back there, and then here, and then okay. here. Um, Aaron Soans, the APEC Study Center. Um, I was wondering to what extent a trade war could spill over into a natural war. Uh, many people argue that trade prevents war, but if that if those trade flows are disrupted, do you think that could um, mm -hmm. quicken the flashpoints? Yeah, another another really good um, another really um, and I think certainly on on that that last point that that you raise about you know a lot of people do say that um, that uh, trade um, trade prevents war. I mean, it's a very long uh, enduring argument with a you know very, as you would know um, you know a very distinguished lineage. But I think it's also it's one of the the arguments that I really worry about in in Asia at, at the moment today that 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 argument along with the argument that. The preservation of, uh, that the the presence of nuclear weapons um, means that war is unthinkable has really generated a, a sense of um, of complacency um, in in Asia at the moment. And this you know this complacency is a is another one of the features of a, of a crisis slide that um, that you kind of go through of of crises and and leaders think oh well we, we managed to um, to to work our way through those crises and. Uh, that crisis, and then another one happens, and we manage to work our way through that. And it, the kind of the idea that war could actually uh, result from one of these crises kind of becomes almost unthinkable, or, or states people start to become very relaxed about the, the prospect that, that war could uh, could emerge. So I, I think that that um, you know, just to pick up on that last part of your question, um, I think that's one of the assumptions that we need to question a lot more carefully. And I know I know today that the nature of economic interdependence in Asia is, is very very different. Uh, to the, the type of economic interdependence that we saw in Europe on the eve of the First World War. But, I mean, people making very similar arguments, including a very famous book by Norman Angel that was published in 1910, where he, he talked about the idea of, of Europe going to war back in, at that particular point. Um, you know, it just wouldn't make any sense, and four years later, war, war broke out. But I think, the, you know, the other part of your question, could a trade war spill over into... Um, into um, conflict, I, I think that's certainly um, uh, certainly a, a possibility. Depending upon what um, what economic impacts the, the the trade war has, if we and if we see the, the trade war, and we, we we don't really know at this stage exactly how it's going to going to play out between the, the US and and China, but if we see that that trade war start to have really damaging impacts um, upon the, the Chinese economy, and um, there's, you know, there's already speculation that it's, it's starting to have some, in, some impacts and that, that China's kind of publicly stated growth figures of around about the 6.5% uh, per annum um, mark are actually closer to kind of the, the, around the one, just above 1% growth per annum at, at the moment. If we started to see an economic downturn in China as a, as a result of that, um, that particular trade war, we could potentially see a situation where Xi's position domestically, which only a few months ago looked looked very strong because of you know the the, the party basically allowed him got rid of um, presidential term limits, meaning that he could potentially be China's leaders for for his whole life. That that situation could potentially become much weaker very quickly, and he could potentially face pressure from from within his own party and within the country more more generally. Um, to take a strong stance, and and then so you could. I mean, some of you will remember there was a very very famous movie that came out uh, I don't know 20, 20 or so years ago called Wag the Dog, where a, a president in the U.S. started a, a conflict to kind of distract uh, from domestic troubles. You you could imagine that a, a Wag the Dog phenomenon happening 
within China where a Xi who is, was feeling insecure, where his leadership was feeling insecure, decides to, to, to behave more um, assertively or aggressively potentially by, by using force, say, in, in relation to the Taiwan issue or, um, or on, on one of the other, other flashpoints. So I think there's certainly... Uh, I know I came, came a bit answering your, your question kind of from back the front, but I also wanted to pick up on that, that last point. But I think the, the point you raise is, is a good one as well. We could potentially, as, as we've seen throughout history, and in fact, as we saw in the, the, the period prior to the Second World War, we could see uh, economic downturn contribute to, um, to major power conflict. All right, uh, Melissa, just here. Melissa Conley-Tyler from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, and thank you, Brendan, for speaking to me on our Australian Outlook blog about the, the book. <laughs> Product placement. Um, help, I think you put your arguments very cogently um, and gave very clear policy prescriptions. My question is, how are they being received? So do you think there's any prospect that either Australian policymakers or, God forbid, US policymakers might listen to some of these views? Yeah. It's a great question, and the, the honest answer, and, and thanks for coming along as well, Melissa, it's always great to see you. It's, uh, um, it's still very early days. The book's only only been out for I think, just over a, just over a week. In fact, the, the interview I did on Australian Outlook was the very very first interview I, I I did on the book. So thank you thank you for that. But um, I mean I, I my sense is that certainly in in Australia at the moment, I think the of this argument being um, I suppose being kind of adopted or, or implemented at the governmental level are, are, probably, uh, are probably fairly remote at the moment, partly because there's, there's just such an emphasis on, on the Indo-Pacific um, and it kind of comes back to some of the points that, that Nick was, was making. And I think, you know, for Australia, you know, for reasons I stated, I think that, I think that makes up with a, a region um, that, uh, that includes Australia is, is important. Um, and I think that there is a genuine attempt on, on the part of... Um, of of the government to assuming we still have the same government as we had at the start of this this uh, session to try and, and shape it a balance of things that um, that that worries me is that um, is that the type of balance of power that they're trying to shape I'm, I'm not sure in the end how credible that's that's going to be and I think that we need to also be thinking about other um, you know and as I said about the Indo-Pacific it's a great great concept in, in theory but I think we also need to think about, I mean, there's, there's, there's always more than, than, you know, there's different variants of, of, of stable power balances, as, as, as you would know. And, uh, and I think thinking about what are, what are going to be other potentially stable power balances um, um, in, in our region, because I think in, in the end, if, if you, I mean, Australia has a number of strategic objectives, but I think one of those, obviously the defence of, of the Australian continent, but I think the other, if you look back through our history, one of one of our overriding strategic objectives has been to maintain a stable balance of power um, in in this part of the world and to live in a stable a stable region. And so, um, um, the honest answer is, I, I don't think this argument will will be picked up yet. Um, but perhaps when when things start to deteriorate further, it might it might gain some. I hope it'll gain some serious consideration. I, I think one of the challenges for this this sort of thinking that's in the book resonating in Washington is. As yet, there's not a consensus view about the scale of the kind of challenge that China presents, and particularly, I think there's still, I think I think it's wrong, but I think which is my view, to, that that China presents the kind of significant challenge to American primacy in the region that China is still a second tier power. I think until that, 
view shifts, I think th this will be seen as, yeah, a bit too ahead. Yeah, not, not yet. Now, um, person in the middle there, yep. Thank you, Nicholas Phibbs. Uh, Brendan, I know this may not be your area of expertise. Do you believe the flashpoints you've spoken about tonight are more likely to lead to a global conflict than, say, Putin's push for Russia to have exert more influence in Europe through Crimea and the Ukraine, or ambitious nuclear plans? Mm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit biased because I work on I work on Asia, but um, I, I think that. Um, I mean, certainly, I'd, I'd come back again to that, um, you know, potential for, for wide war. I think, once again, I think there, there is potential for... I mean, there is potential for conflict between the, the US and, and, and Russia. Um, uh, I think there is potential for um, a conflict in Iran to, to bring in um, the, the, the great powers as, as well. But I, I think out of, out of the three, if I was to compare between the three, I, I think, you know, still going back to that kind of the blamey... Um, idea of, um, of of wide war. I think that these these funds to um, uh, to have the potential to um, to bring uh, to bring the, the major powers in, into war. But I don't know. Perhaps we can we can talk to Chris afterwards about a, a what's the what's the, the third now? book? The, the nine the nine flashpoints. <laughs> the volume good, flash good volume three. <laughs> um, so just here. Uh, yeah. Hi, Emma from La Trobe University. Uh, my question is fairly straightforward. Uh, you mentioned at one point that you feel that President Trump is likely to make a deal with North Korea than his predecessors. Could you explain that? Mm. I, always, I always get nervous when someone says they're going to ask me a straightforward question. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, I think probably, it, um, it, I mean, probably what, I, what I meant by that was it um, com comes from uh, the fact that, that Trump is, it kind of comes from a business background, so he, he kind of, you know, he's written, the, written the, this famous book called The Art of Other Deal. He's kind of has a reputation for being able to, to, to strike deals. I think that that, that reputation, uh, that experience is, is probably one, one of the reasons why I, I think... Um, but also just because he's... Um, I, I think he's, he's just a very, very different kind of unconventional figure um, compared to his... Um, Compared to his, his predecessors, I think that that, that was kind of the other um, kind of idea that I had in mind there that he he's shown his his, his willingness um, sometimes I think in, in a negative way or in a detrimental way to to kind of throw out the traditional diplomacy. But I think on a, on an issue like North Korea that's been so long and difficult and, and protracted, um, the the old the traditional diplomatic playbook hasn't hasn't worked. So I think that those were kind of the two things I had in mind. One was his kind of business experience of Kind of wheeling and dealing and, and deal making, but the other was his, his kind of unconventional approach, his, his willing his willingness to try things that, that kind of move move away from or move outside that those kind of traditional diplomatic approaches. Yeah, and I, I think I mean that, that sense of being rationally work, thinking through the kind of cost benefits of a particular policy. North Korea, you know, there's so many downsides to it that it really hems in your options. But if you're a guy like Trump, it's like don't worry about that. Then you you do have different kind of calculus around how you think think of these things. I mean, yeah, I think I think from from a purely like, is he likely to cut some kind of deal? He's got a lot more freedom of manoeuvre um, just because of the way he thinks. Now, whether that produces good outcomes, separate question. Um, front, front, we've got one right at the back, one here, and one here. So if everyone's quick, we can get through these three, and that's probably I'm afraid we probably won't get to you, but we'll see. If we can keep them quick. Hey, good evening. Um, so my question was around energy security. 
and its role in potential mm-hmm. conflicts. Uh, yeah, basically due to the amount of countries in Asia that need imports for their energy supplies and the current changes going on in the global energy. Yeah, well, I think the... I mean, energy security certainly, um, you know, feeds into a number of, a number of these, these flashpoints. Um, you know, on, on the South China Sea and the East China Sea, um, arguably the, the resources lying uh, underneath those waters are a big, a big factor that um, are driving those, those conflicts. Um, I think on the Korean Peninsula, energy is very important as well, particularly that the link between Russia and, uh, and North Korea. I think it's a, a relationship that... I mean, we looked a lot at during the Cold War, the relationship between the, the Soviet Union and North Korea. Um, the Soviet Union was kind of North Korea's major kind of patron along with China during the Cold War. But it's a relationship we, we don't tend to look as much about all in the, in the book. Um, but those kind of energy relationships, um, I mean, Russia has many, many weaknesses, but, um, you know, it's still, it's still got a formidable nuclear arsenal. It's also, in, in many respects, an energy superpower with the, the oil and particularly the gas um, reserves that it has. So that's an important energy security dimension. I think for Australia also the, the South China Sea energy dimension is important as, as well in that if, you know, it's unlikely that, in my view, that, that we'll see a major conflict in the, in the South China Sea. But if, if we did, that, that could have, you know, very severe ramifications for, for Australia. We'd, I think the, the level of fuel supplies that we keep in, in, the, in the country is something, something in the vicinity of about um, 28 to sort of um, of fuel, so that so, I mean, we would still potentially be able to get um, fuel through those. That I means it's, it's a vast body of water, even in a conflict situation. But it would become more difficult, and I think we'd begin to see pretty severe rationing and potentially um, an economic recession um, in, um, in in Australia, as, as well as a result of conflict breaking out in any of these um, these theatres. So those are kind of the, the three kind of main energy dimension angles that I that I see um, to these these four flashpoints. Down, down here. Hi. Um, in the previous conversation, you kind of mentioned about uh, the Hitler and mm. uh, the current leader, uh, yes. how they paralleled. Can you um, elaborate about that uh, point, about to what extent do they like behave the same? And the second question is, do you think that... Uh, North Korea kind of used their nuclearization as a leverage advantage other than negotiating but to postpone the economic sanction? Mm. You know, both, both good questions. And um, I mean, I think my, my point about um, Germany and, and China was probably less about the leaders themselves than, than about, um, you know, I think all, all major powers when they when they rise, they they want to have a, a greater have a greater say in sh- in, in shaping uh, the international um, system as their as their power rises. And I think that was the case with with Germany. Um, um, you know, back in the uh, the period before the two world wars, I think it's I think it was the case with the United States. It it, it moved it emerged slowly, but um, as as it did begin to emerge, it wanted to have a greater say in shaping the international system. I think it's it's a uh, the case with China today, I think it's just the way that, that great powers behave. Nick, Nick Busy's actually written a, a really good book on, on great power um, behaviour that uh, if you want to read more about how, how great powers behave. But, I mean, certainly, yeah, my point wasn't really to compare Xi with Hitler. In fact, I, I think I, I see very uh, between Xi's approach and, and Hitler's approach. I think uh, Hitler placed a much greater emphasis on actually using military power, and he didn't really seem to 
consider the, the costs of, of using military power. I think if she can avoid using military power, I think he will, will do all that he can to, to try and increase China's influence in Asia and, and it, it, essentially for China to become even the dominant power in Asia without using military power. So I think that the two personalities, I, I think I'd, I see them as being quite different. I, uh, I suppose my point was just the, the similarities between um, most great powers when they're, when they're rising kind of will, will have some similarities in their, in their behaviour, but I think the, the differences between China and Germany are, are greater than the similarities. I hope that helps to clarify that, that point. Um, on, on the... Um, the, the nuclear weapons um, and, and as leverage for uh, lifting of, of sanctions. Um, I think that there's really going to be a sequencing problem there because I think on, on the one hand, um, the, the Trump administration and, and the Australian government has, has supported it very strongly. And in fact, Julie Bishop, our foreign minister, has, has come out even perhaps even more strongly than President Trump himself on this point um, and has suggested that the sanctions need to remain in place, that the maximum... what Trump calls the maximum pressure campaign against North Korea needs to continue until um, the, the, the North Koreans um, will get rid of their, their, their nuclear weapons. Um, the, the North Koreans, on, on the other hand, um, are basically not willing to, to get rid of their nuclear weapons until they see um, some, con some concessions on, on the part of their... So I think how that, how that works out, I think that'll be one of the things that's happening at, at the moment, is that, is that how is this sequence? Back in... In the early 1990s and 1994, when the US and North Korea made a similar um, agreement, they actually came up with a, a sequence where um, a kind of an action for action where one side would, would take some step and the other, the other side would, would reciprocate. And there was a, a pattern that was supposed to kind of be followed through to the conclusion of, of that agreement. And the agreement eventually, uh, after about eight of them, and fell apart. So I think that certainly... North Korea would like to do that, but whether, whether the United States is, is going to trust it sufficiently, and I think the answer is probably no, that it probably won't, and I think there's good reasons why the, why the United States shouldn't trust the, the North Koreans on, on this point, because we've seen it, um, we've seen this uh, with the North Koreans before. Um, I, I think that's going to be the, the real sticking point, is that, what, is that, how, does that how does that sequencing occur? So the North, North Koreans would like to do what you're suggesting, whether they will be able to do it or they'll be allowed to do it, I think is so, much less likely. Okay, one very quick one here at the front. I'm afraid the rest will have to join the queue to buy one of Brennan's books and then you can ask him a question. Thank you. In Lynosis, would you favour an increase in Australian defence expenditure? Mm. Cut to the chase here. Yes, yes. <laughs> Certainly an increase in the investment in defence and strategic mm. studies. <laughs> well, I, think, I think it's one of the things that, you know, Trump, Trump has received a, a lot of criticism from many quarters. I think one of the one of the things that he's done more effectively than any of his predecessors is, is he's been able to, to get US allies to, to start to, to take seriously the, the fact that um, the possibility of spending more on their, on their defence. Um, you know, Obama tried to do this as, as well, um, and, but wasn't, wasn't particularly successful. I think, I think the reality is, is that we probably are going to see um, increased expenditure in, in Australia. Um, but I, I think one of the things in our debate that we haven't really thought through sufficiently is is um, is the the extent or how great those um, defence uh, those increases in defence expenditure will need to be. Um, depending, I mean that that in the end um, should really be determined by the the nature of our strategic environment. It, I mean, you often hear um, 
you know, the analysts talk about, oh, it should be 2% or 3% or 5%. I, I think in the, in the end, you've got to look at, at, at the nature of your strategic environment. One of the things I, I think that we underestimate in our debate, um, particularly about having a greater degree of independence from, from the United States, so that would, would be for Australia and, and what, how much of our defence, uh, how much our defence expenditure would need to increase to, to compensate for that. And my, my own personal view, and this is my kind of intervention into the, the kind of the, the plan, plan B debate about whether Australia should be looking for a, a plan B for defending itself, as is, is I think that that, that figure is, is much higher than, uh, than, than many have, um, have, have contemplated at the at, at the moment, so um, which is one of the reasons why I, um, you know, although I'm suggesting in the book that that the US should should be looking to pull back from some parts of the, the region, ultimately I I very much would like to see the US remain a presence in this this part of the world because I think that's something that's very critical to uh, to Australia's interests and, and spend a little more on defence to, to keep the US in this part of the world. I think we'd have to spend significantly more on on our defence if, if the US in the unlikely event that the US vacated this this part of, of the world. So. I mean, in answer to your question, a lot, a lot depends on, on the extent to which the strategic environment um, deteriorates. But I think almost certainly um, we are going to see, have to see some increases in defence expenditure in the, the period ahead. All right. Um, I will call Kelly back to the lectern to formally close um, this evening's proceedings. Thanks very much, uh, Nick. Please join me in, in thanking Uh, that was fascinating, um, and I'd like to again thank Brendan and Nick for the discussion here on stage, and also like to thank you all for coming and engaging with them uh, with such interesting and thought-provoking questions. The discussion tonight, I think you'll agree, has been especially relevant to us uh, here in Australia, where key players and partners in the Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific as the host this evening, I might remain neutral in that discussion, um, but keeping in mind how fascinating tonight's discussion has been, I'd like to remind uh, all here that tickets are available for the next La Trobe Asia event, uh, which is a launch of Marie's new book, Figuring Victims in International Criminal Justice, The Case of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. It's on the 29th of August at our city campus in Collins Street, uh, and I'm sure will be just as fascinating as this evening's discussion has been. Uh, and, of course, I'd like to remind you of the launch of our very first issue of the Latrobe Asia Brief. This is a policy brief uh, titled Cooperation in Contested Asia. This is on the afternoon of the 7th of September, also at our city campus in Collins Street. More information about these events can be found on the Latrobe Asia website. Thank you again for coming this evening. As Nick has mentioned, copies of the book are for the foyer. And Brendan will remain for a short time to sign copies if you would like him to do that. Uh, again, please join me in thanking our speakers for this evening. Thank you. All right, you can have a sign. Have you put a pen? <laughs>
question. Um, oh yes, the 